Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's Podcast. This is episode 32 and this episode is all about damage control resuscitation. Now there was a lot of good stuff in this interview so we've decided to split it over two parts. So this is part one. I hope you enjoy. So we're here at Scottstar in, in Scotland, um, which is the Emergency Medicine Retrieval Service. Um, and we're here with uh, Dr. Peter Davis. Um, and you're going to hear from Peter very shortly. And we're going to talk today about damage control resuscitation. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for asking me. Uh, on... And probably a good place to start. Would do, do you mind just giving a little bit of a background to your kind of medical career and your military career as well? Um, I've had a, a career in both uh, general practice originally and uh, and then later on in uh, in emergency medicine uh, and I've spent the majority of my career in the uh, UK defense medical services. I've seen active service from um, back in the late 80s in uh, in Northern Ireland um, through to the desert conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and then particularly in the in the in the concentrated recent sort of global conflict in the early 2000s right up until 2014 when we left Afghanistan and that has probably informed your specific interest which is damage control resuscitation isn't that that's right? correct yeah so probably a good place to start if you don't mind do you mind just outlining for those listeners who may be not quite sure what the term means what exactly is damage control resuscitation damage control resuscitation or DCR is a targeted strategy for resuscitation. It's aimed at at a small group of patients who've entered the lethal triad of trauma. So they're already acidemic, they're already um, coagulopathic, and they're hypothermic as well. And this group of patients are on the cusp of life. They have no physiological reserve left. And so they require um, a rapid and aggressive resuscitation approach. This could be summarized as consisting of um, minimizing and controlling ongoing blood loss, restoring circulating volume, optimizing oxygenation, um, and maximizing tissue perfusion. In terms of total numbers, we're probably looking at about 15% of all ISS 15 and greater trauma cases. Recognizing this, these patients may only be possible in the emergency room where you've got um, point of care testing, hematology and biochemistry um, assays available. But essentially a patient with a pH of 7.2 or less, um, a patient who's already coagulopathic and hypothermic with a temperature of 35 Celsius or less um, has entered the lethal triad and requires uh, a DCR approach. In these cases, survival trumps morbidity and managing the metabolic derangement caused by trauma trumps definitive care or surgery in the first instance. Um, so, so this, to me, feels like a relatively new concept, but it probably isn't. How, how long has this been around? So damage control, um, referring to surgery, really um, was first described in the surgical text in the mid-70s. Uh, and then there was a seminal paper from Schwab and his colleagues in the US in 1993. The, the term itself, damage control, um, is derived from naval terminology. Um, in World War II, it was recognized that, uh, that, that ships that were very badly damaged in combat needed to maintain their mission integrity. In other words, they needed to be able to A, stay afloat, and B, fight on if necessary 
um, before they could actually return to the home port where they could enter dry dock and maybe undergo many months of repairs. Uh, and that, that those many months of repairs, if you like, what we probably would would call uh, you know definitive surgery if we're applying that type of uh, terminology to a patient. But in order to actually get to the stage where definitive treatment or definitive care and repairs could be affected, um, the, the ship needed to be able to fight on and stay afloat in the first place. So what we're doing is applying that principle to some of our very sickest patients who've been critically injured. So probably the easiest way to really get a sense of, of what, what this means is to kind of maybe go through a, a case. Now, it's hard to summarize all the complexities of resuscitation into one case. But if you don't mind, we'll try to, to invent a case. I think you have a case in mind. And we'll kind of go through it in, in stages, um, kind of um, looking at some of the damage control concepts, let's say, or, or techniques or things that we, we can do to, to, to improve outcomes in resuscitation. Is that fair? So I think you had a case in mind. Is that right? Do you, do you want to just yeah, tell so us let, what that let's, is? Let's consider maybe a, um, a, a motorcyclist um, in uh, a male motorcyclist in his in his mid thirties, who's in a high speed collision with a heavy goods vehicle on a country road, um, and uh, this patient suffers uh, quite obvious major chest injuries with evidence of multiple rib fractures on both the left and the right side, um, and most of the impact is taken on the right side of the body. He's got a tense, distended abdomen, um, extensive bruising uh, on the right side of the abdomen. Uh, and a mangled right lower extremity, so a compound proximal femoral fracture. And this is actually a case that you've experienced, isn't that right? Yeah, I've been exposed to some multiple similar cases uh, over the years, either working in the emergency room or uh, or working uh, in the pre-hospital environment. Okay, so why don't we run through this particular case? That might help us get a better understanding of how this um, works, I guess. Um, obviously, this is quite an unnatural way to look at it. Um, a lot of things will happen concurrently in a team approach. But we'll look at it a little bit artificially just to break it down so we get a better understanding of some of the things to think about in the moment, if that's okay. Um, we're not talking about scene safety and, and extraction and those types of things. They're, they're separate issues. But we'll, we'll presume this patient is safe to approach and, and we're, we're ready to start medical resuscitation. So you mentioned before about a CABC approach. So if we start with C, so external hemorrhage control, and we'll presume in this case that this is a bleeding limb, what are the main principles that you can adopt to control hemorrhage in the field? There are a variety of techniques available to us. Um, the first thing is uh, simply splinting an extremity uh, may, may reoppose the, the, the damaged bones and provide some tamponade. Uh, we can elevate, we can do the very simple things. Um, we can put a, um, a large bandage on, a sort of blast bandage, a trauma bandage, and, and attempt to compress the wound. And it may be that that's all that's required to achieve hemorrhage control. But there are a few other things we can do, one of which may be um, to use a, a tourniquet. Um, tourniquet certainly had gone out of fashion until the more recent uh, uh, global conflict period where they definitely come back in again. Um, and the other thing uh, is to consider uh, the, the use of what we call the novel hemostatic agents. So these are, um, are chemically impregnated dressings that can be applied to or actually packed into a wound uh, where the chemicals that are impregnated um, aim to, uh, to promote coagulation, if you like, in the same way that we're perhaps familiar with, with simple calterstat dressings uh, on small extremity wounds or wounds around the face, for instance. Can you give us any examples of some of those dressings, just some of the names? And 
Yeah, the the things that again that were, were sort of the development of these is driven by conflict, and the products that are available commercially are um, Quickclot, um, Hemcon, uh, and Celox, uh, amongst some others. And the preparations um, vary between um, granules, as in the case of uh, the original Quickclot product, um, through to impregnated dressings or impregnated ribbon gauze that can be packed into a wound. Is there any downsides to them? Are they are they safe? They, they don't cause any tissue damage. It's not like surgeons further down the line or get frustrated. Are they are they are they without kind of side effect? No, the, the, certainly the the um, there was a. Um, a, a very pronounced exothermic reaction with the original quick clock granules, uh, which was both toxic to the um, the medic applying them if 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 his or her hands weren't covered, um, and also uh, to the wound as well that, that required further debridement by a surgeon afterwards. But we're in a situation where getting hemorrhage control is an imperative. Um, so I've never actually had to use any hemostatic agents. Um, so I, I'm not quite familiar with the thought processes behind when is appropriate to use them. Do you mind just giving us your thinking? When, when would you think, okay, now is the right time to use one of these agents? The, uh, the hemostatic agents are particularly useful um, in the areas in which we can't provide compression to, to gain hemorrhage control. So typically, they're the, what we call the junctional area, so the root of the neck, where the big vessels enter the uh, the torso, uh, the axillae, um, and the uh, and the groin area, so we can't put a tourniquet on in right into the groin to to control hemorrhage from say a a, a disrupted femoral vessel. And what we might need to actually do um, before we get the patient to um, a surgeon who can achieve vascular control, what we might need to do is pack the area with a hemostatic agent in order to gain control. So just to be very clear. Um, so say I have a patient like this, I'm on my own um, and it's in a very awkward position, junctional area, and I'm, I'm struggling to control this. It, w- what would it be fair to say? What's the basics of using these dressings? Can I just pick a dressing, stuff it into the max? And, and is that essentially the, the basics of it? Gain initial control just by putting a trauma bandage over the wound while, while you prepare the equipment, while you prepare the dressing, uh, and then have an assistant remove the trauma bandage and then as rapidly as possible pack the, um, pack the wound uh, with the hemostatic dressing uh, right up to the surface and then apply at least one, probably two or more trauma dressings over the top of that in order to be able to apply pressure um, externally. And I take it once you've packed it, your options are fairly limited. They either work or they don't. Is yeah. that is that fair to say? So I presume if if it's if the bandage is bleeding through and and it's continuing to bleed heavily, I presume your only option is is probably surgery at that stage. Is that fair? So again, it has to be emphasised that the use of hemostatic agents or the use of a tourniquet is really a temporising measure, and that actually what probably is required is surgical vascular control. But these are lifeboat measures, if you like, which enable you in the, you know, adopting the philosophy of damage control. These are lifeboat measures that enable you to get the patient either into the resuscitation room or into the operating theatre from the resuscitation room in order to achieve that definitive vascular control. Um, okay, just going back to the tourniquet again, um, do you mind just some of the, the, the main principles of using them? What, what, what would you want us to know? Well, not every mangled limb or compound fracture requires a tourniquet. Um, the, the hemorrhage from those kind of injuries can be controlled with simple compression or with the uh, the application of a 
uh, a trauma bandage uh, and by elevating the limb. But if those simple measures aren't, aren't able to control that external hemorrhage, then a tourniquet may be useful. In, in terms of applying it, the principles are to apply it as distally as possible, but still controlling the hemorrhage so as to preserve the proximal tissue. And that's particularly important with, uh, with a traumatic amputation because you want to preserve as much of the limb as possible. Uh, we aim to keep the tourniquet on for as little time as possible. And we can talk about warm and cold ischemic times, but these are concepts really that are important for a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon uh, rather than for, for us involved in the uh, initial resuscitation of the patient. Um, it's important that when, if a tourniquet is applied in the, uh, in the pre-hospital phase, that when the patient's in the emergency room, that the, um, the pre-hospital type tourniquet, the windless tourniquet, uh, is exchanged for a pneumatic tourniquet um, in the emergency room. And that's an opportunity for the, uh, um, for the, the, the limb surgeons, the, the plastic and the orthopedic surgeons, um, to see whether there's any ongoing hemorrhage um, from the limb or not. Okay, so I think we've covered external hemorrhage control. And again, like we've said, we're doing a lot of things concurrently. But if we just talk quickly about A and B, A and B is obviously essential. Um, what, what are the main things to think about in terms of damage control resuscitation with A and B? So if we employ advanced airway management techniques and, uh, and mechanical ventilation, then we're able to optimize oxygenation and therefore optimize and maximize tissue perfusion as well. And that's an essential component of the uh, of the DCR algorithm. And decompression and would de probably be included in that. Is that yeah, fair and to decompression say? of um, of thoracic injuries uh, if required as well. And we won't go into the detail of that. I think we'll we'll move on if you don't mind to to blood product resuscitation. Um, so what what are the main kind of principles? Um, with, with blood product resuscitation. So one of the cornerstones of DCR is that, that crystalloid administration um, is avoided if at all possible. So we, we really don't want to give any crystalloid at all. What, what we want to do um, is start hemostatic resuscitation in the field if we can. And what's available to a medical team in the field consists of uh, tranexamic acid, TXA, um, packed red cells, and in some cases now, um, fresh frozen plasma uh, as well. And often this is freeze-dried fresh frozen plasma or lyophilized fresh frozen plasma. We'll come to the emergency room soon because um, it'll probably, well, it differs quite significantly in terms of how much to give and what to give. But in terms of in the field, what would be your decision makers for how much to give um, to the patient? So what we need is a is a trigger really to start hemostatic resuscitation in the field, and the that that decision is going to be based on um, looking at the mechanism of injury, uh, evidence of major hemorrhage or ongoing hemorrhage, and the physiological parameters that you can measure in the field, such as um, oxygenation, um, systolic blood pressure, um, heart rate, tachycardia, etc. And you mentioned that some pre-hospital services have fresh frozen plasma. If you have both uh, red cells and fresh frozen plasma, do you give it in a one-to-one -one ratio? Is that typically what you would do? Yeah, so if you start hemostatic resuscitation with packed red cells and fresh frozen plasma in the field, the ideal ratio would be one-to-one. -one. And and we have um, uh, electronic uh, warming devices available. Um, there, are, there are two in sort of common use, one of which is the Enflow system. The other one is the Belmont Buddy Light system. 
uh, and these are used to uh, uh, to warm um, the uh, packed red cells and fresh frozen plasma from four degrees Celsius, which is the temperature at which uh, they're stored and carried. Um, and you can achieve um, infusion temperatures of sort of uh, mid twenty Celsius. Um, do anything you want to talk about in terms of scooping and running, like? damage control is this like we got to get to a surgeon pretty quick no i think what you what we're saying is that if if you've got a medical team then you can start damage control resuscitation in the field we can deliver advanced medical procedures as part of damage control resuscitation in the field but we still have to be really mindful of what we call scene time and we want to minimize scene time and really we want to aim for a time between so 30 to 45 minutes um, before we're moving towards uh, the receiving um, hospital. Some of the advanced medical procedures can be delivered during the transfer phase. So for instance, you might start the transfusion of packed red cells at the scene, but that can continue in the back of an ambulance or uh, in the rear of a helicopter while you're transporting the patient to hospital. The, the options for delivering um, DCR by non-medical teams are fairly limited and are probably restricted to um, external hemorrhage control. They don't have the option of advanced airway um, management and uh, mechanical ventilation, and they probably don't have the option of delivering blood or blood products either. So in those circumstances, after external hemorrhage control has been achieved, if you can achieve it, then the priority is to move as fast as possible to the receiving hospital. Okay, any, any other last little things so you've... Controlled external hemorrhage, we've, we're ventilating the patient, decompressed the chest, we are delivering blood product resuscitation, um, and we're now considering it's important to move the patient um, to an appropriate centre. Any, any other little basic things that are important to remember? So these patients have probably entered the, the so-called lethal triad of trauma in that they're acidemic, they're hypothermic, and they're coagulopathic. But well, we've done what we can to address acidemia through ventilation, perhaps. Uh, we're addressing coagulopathy through hemostatic resuscitation. Uh, and the last thing to do is mitigate against hypothermia by, um, by keeping the patient as warm as possible using whatever means you have. So many, many thanks to Peter Davis, and you'll be hearing more from him during part two, which will be out in three weeks' time. I think my main take-home points from this episode were, number one, what is damage control resuscitation? Well, it is a targeted strategy for a small group of trauma patients that have entered the lethal triad, which consists of acidemia, coagulopathy, and hypothermia. So they are on the cusp of life, and the immediate priority is survival through rapid and aggressive resuscitation. And in summary, that is minimizing ongoing blood loss, restoring circulating volume and optimizing oxygenation and tissue perfusion. Number two, to control external hemorrhage, there are a number of simple measures such as splinting, elevating and bandaging. If those are insufficient, you can apply a tourniquet, which is coming back into vogue. And in difficult sites, uh, such as the root of the neck, the axilla or the groin, where it's difficult to apply compression, you have novel hemostatic agents. Number three for fluid resuscitation, ideally avoid crystalloids if at all possible, and hemostatic resuscitation should consist of tranexamic acid, packed red cells, and other blood products if available, such as FFP, and do so in a one-to-one -one ratio. 
And finally, number four, how long to stay at the scene. Largely is determined by whether you are a medical or non-medical team. If you're non-medical, you're probably limited to external hemorrhage control, so do that quickly and then transfer to a receiving hospital. And if you have medical personnel, a lot of these advanced procedures can be done at the scene and during the transfer phase, but you want to ideally limit scene time to about 30 to 45 minutes. So many, many thanks again to Peter. Many thanks to you for listening. Please visit stmungos-ed.com where there's a lot more educational resources for your enjoyment. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like our podcast. And until next time, take care.